Take your Bibles and turn them with me to James chapter 1. And I hope it's not too selfish of me to ask of you during the sermon, just maybe say a, a silent prayer for me. I am very weak this morning, very tired, there's just been a lot going on, and uh, I need an extra dose of God's strength to, to get me through the message, and I'm confident that He will, and I'm confident He will do it through your prayers. Um, James chapter 1. So, in, in my life, I've had the privilege of living in many, many different places, and it's always interesting to see the cultural differences from place to place, even here in America, within the same country. One of the most striking differences I've seen is the difference between living in the northeast corner of the country in New England and the culture here in the south. Big difference. Uh, The difference isn't just that New Englanders love lobster and the southerners love grits and sweet tea. I mean, they don't even know what grits are up there, which is shocking. Uh, The difference isn't just that New England is filled with Patriots football fans, and I can't imagine how anyone could like those Patriots. And down here, we're all about the the Falcons, or even more so the Bulldogs, or even more so the Yellow Jackets. That's for Carrie. (laughs) One of the biggest differences between up there and down here is a religious difference. Uh, New England consistently ranks as the least religious region in the nation, One to three percent of the population attends an evangelical church. I'm so glad that we are, our church is supporting uh, Kevin and Lauren Sanders, our missionaries in in, in Boston. Um, uh, I just read a report from uh, the Barner Group that that said that Boston is number two on their list of the most post-Christian cities in America. Number one on the list is my old stomping grounds, Portland, Maine. But where we are here in the southeast, it's the opposite. It's one of the most religious regions in the nation with many people attending church and many people considering themselves religious. I was stunned when I first moved south and saw so many churches, practically one on every corner sometimes, depending on where you were. And so many people around uh, identify themselves with Christianity. But one of the things I quickly discovered is that just because someone considers themselves a Christian, and claims to be saved, and attends church, does not mean that that person is actually a Christian. Now, this is not a new problem. It's a problem really as old as the church itself. And James is writing to believers in the first century, and he is well aware of this problem. And one of James's goals is to show his readers that a life that has been affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel actually does something in the life of the believer. Faith actually works. It works itself out in the life of the one who has faith. And if you're in chapter 1 already, you can look down at verse 18, and you'll see that James writes that of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. In other words, through the power of His Word, He gave birth to us spiritually and made us into new creations. That's salvation. And notice, it doesn't come through you being a good religious person through your own work and your own efforts. It comes through God's will, through God's work in you. Uh, Through His power, uh, you have become spiritually born again a new creation. 
And James wants to show us the evidences of the new life, the new creation, evidences of the new spiritual life that believers have pulsing in their spirits. Uh, You you see, when a, a newborn baby is born physically, there are signs of life right? The baby cries, the baby craves food, etc. Likewise, there are, are signs of spiritual life when someone is born again, born spiritually, things you should expect to see of that person. And James is going to spend the rest of the book delving into this, uh, what they should expect to see in themselves and in one another as a church body. Now, in the verses that we examined last week, James teaches us about the believer's relationship to the Word of God that a real believer who has been brought forth by the Word of truth needs to be uh, quick to hear the Word, uh, humbly receiving the Word, Uh, not just to be a hearer of the Word, but a doer of the Word, living it out. And after describing the relationship the believer is to have with the Word, he now moves on to discuss the relationship the believer is to have with the world, with other people. And so I see a twofold purpose that James has in all of this. Number one, he aims to encourage genuine believers to pursue to a greater degree everything that God wants them to be, showing them practically what that looks like, uh, to move them from immaturity to greater maturity in Christ. And number two, I think that James is concerned that some of the people in these congregations he's writing to may not be genuine Christians. In fact, James's final words in this book, in chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James has an evangelistic concern here because he's not naive. He knows that there's going to be those in their midst who are not Christians, but think they are, but they're going to eventually wander. Their wandering is going to prove uh, the, uh, the reality of their lack of faith. And he wants the church to keep an eye out for wanderers with, with the purpose of going after them, reminding them of the truth, and saving their soul from spiritual death, from hell. But you can't know if someone is wandering from the faith if you have no idea what the practical outworking of faith is supposed to look like. And that's what the book of James is all about. So, this is a helpful book for believers who need help in growing in godliness, which is every believer, right? I hope you would say that. Uh, We all have room to grow in our faith. Uh, We all have room to grow in places in our lives where God's Word might uh, bring about conviction to bring us uh, in our lifestyle into greater conformity with His will. But also, this book is helpful to the one who thinks he's religious, but actually doesn't have the life of God in him. And so, I'm hopeful that the Word will minister to you regardless of what category you find yourself in this morning. So, with that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the perfect and precious words of our God. We're in James chapter 1, and we're looking at the final two verses, starting in verse 26. Final two verses of chapter 1. God's Word says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as the Word is unleashed this morning, it would minister to hearts 
would open eyes that need to be opened, would challenge, encourage, convict, and bless. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before I get to my, my main points, can I just share just quick, three quick things that we've got to be clear on as we consider how James distinguishes between worthless religion and real religion? And these three little things are not in your bulletin. You can consider this an appetizer. This is the pre-sermon, and don't worry, it's going to be short. Uh, but, but we've got to get these three things right because, because if we mess up here, we're going to totally mess up our interpretation of the book of James, and, and we'll actually mess up the essence of Christianity itself, and we don't want to do that. First, real religion is not some set of rules that you do to earn God's favor. That would be false religion. It's not about climbing uh, a ladder through your own efforts, trying to be good enough to earn salvation. The book of James is not about things that you are supposed to do to get saved. The book of James is about things you do because you're already saved. There's a big difference between those two. We've got to keep that in mind. Second, in these two verses that we just read, James gives us three tests for real religion, religion that God accepts and loves. But it's not meant to be exhausted, exhaustive, right? I mean, there's, there's lots of things here that James doesn't talk about, like prayer and, 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 and fellowship with other believers and, and, and the church and, and all sorts of things. So, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not meant to be exhaustive. There's much more to a life of faith than the three things that James points out here, but these three things are extremely important and helpful. Third, every single person in this room is going to fail to one degree or another at these three tests that I'm about to share with you, that James shares with you. This is going to be a painful message for you if you're really taking these tests to heart. It was for me all week long, as I've been living in these two verses all week long. Loads of conviction coming on me. On the other hand, it's important to know that the Bible never promises that that the saved person will be perfect before heaven. Uh, failure happens to the best of believers, but the true believer nevertheless will have a genuine disappointment in his failure to live up to these tests while having a keen interest in growing stronger in these areas, and we should expect over, over years of spiritual growth that, that more fruit will, will be yielded in these areas in the life of a believer. And so, the purpose of these verses is not to beat you up as much as it is to, to stir you up, to love, and to, to good works, to motivate you to press even deeper into the things of God and experience the joy and blessing that comes in keeping His Word. James says in the end of verse 25 that a doer of the Word who acts on the Word will be blessed in his doing. Now, with that said, James gives us three tests to discern the nature of real religion. And the first thing he talks about are lips that are controlled. Lips that are controlled. He says in verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So James introduces this image of a bridle. You know what a bridle is? It's used to control a, a horse. Now, I don't know a lot about horses. I've ridden maybe two or three of them in my life. But what I do know is that at times they can be very hard to control. 
Now, granted, a bunch of puppies can be hard to control too, but in a different way. Dealing with puppies is difficult, but not dangerous. But dealing with these powerful, huge 1,500-pound animals that are unpredictable, that actually have the power to kill you, uh, that maybe have gotten startled or afraid or angry and have gotten out of control, getting something like that back under control is a different matter altogether. And you've got to have a bridle if you're going you're to get that charging beast back under control. And so it's interesting that James chooses this image, not fencing in puppies, not herding sheep, uh, but, but, but wrestling with and taming the wild horse. He compares that to controlling your speech. The Bible has a lot to say about our speech. The psalmist says in Psalm 141, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Why? Because words hurt. Indeed, words can even kill. Proverbs says that death is in the power of the tongue. Uh, Proverbs 11.9 says, with his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. You see, the unbridled, out-of-control tongue is speech that is reckless, like a, a wild, charging horse. It's cutting remarks. It's biting sarcasm. It's, it's unkind words. Proverbs 12.18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Sword thrusts. Is that how your words are when you talk to your husband, to your wife, to your child? Are you thrusting a sword into the heart of those around you? And yes, sometimes when we are around certain people at church, for example, we can talk holy and pious and nice, and then we get into the car after church, shut the doors, we haven't even gotten out of the parking lot until we start impaling our kids with our words. Sword thrusts. I know I've done it. That's an unbridled tongue. And when I do that, I'm acting like the godless. An unbridled tongue is... Foolish talk and crude joking, as it talks about in Ephesians 5, 4. We all know what crude joking is, so I won't give examples. This is a family service. An unbridled tongue is lying speech. It's gossip and slander. Proverbs 16, 28 says, a gossip separates close friends. Oh, how much havoc I have seen the devil wreak in churches and in relationships because of gossip people talking about other people behind their backs, never going to the person in question. And there's nothing, there's no helpful purpose in that speech whatsoever. And some people excuse gossip and slander by saying, well, well, it's true. What I'm saying is true. But just because it's true doesn't mean it needs to come out of your mouth. As someone once said, a truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. The unbridled tongue is manipulative speech, speech designed to control and give yourself the upper hand, speech designed to get something from someone else like cunning flattery. The Scripture constantly warns about a kind of speech that has no redemptive purpose. Uh, The person who is constantly given over to this kind of speech shows evidence not of true religion, but of worthless religion. Because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and it's your heart that God is most interested in. 
If Jesus were here today in the 21st century, standing right here and saying some things to you, he may also say, out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers tweet. Yes, this should apply to social media as well. And oh, the bitterness and biting sarcasm and slanderous things I have seen from the post of Christians, whether they're engaged in doctrinal debate or political debate. You see, what comes out of your mouth or out of your tweeting fingers is like a spiritual x-ray exposing what's in the heart. And we all fail here, even the best of Christians. But the one who is totally given over to and dominated by an unbridled tongue exposes a corrupt heart. Someone may go to church, may give money to the church, do various good deeds, teach a Sunday school class, witness and evangelize. They may know lots of good and sound theology. They may stand behind this pulpit and preach to you. But if their tongue is unbridled, their religiosity is of no value, and they are self-deceived. And either you're a massively immature Christian or you're not one at all. Either way, you're self-deceived, and, it's not, and you're not as pious as you think you are. John Calvin says that when people shed their grosser sins, they are extremely vulnerable to contract this complaint. In other words, when, when, when people uh, shed some of the big sins, uh, they, they, they find themselves vulnerable to the charge of an unbridled tongue. He says, a man will steer clear of adultery, of stealing, of drunkenness, In fact, he will be a shining light of outward religious observance and yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal. But it is a lust for vilification. Now, going back to the bridling imagery, bridling is not just for taming the beast, it's also for directing the beast. In other words, words, it's not just that we are to refrain from certain kinds of speech but we're also to intentionally direct our speech in a helpful and redemptive direction. And so, Ephesians 4.29 says, "...let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." Is your tongue bridled? Are you not only refraining from harmful, hurtful speech, but considering how your speech may be a source of ministry and blessing to others? Uh, you'll, You'll all have a chance to practice this immediately after the service. I would love our church to be a church that is characterized by gracious speech, and that every week when we come together to this place, you would be on mission to bless others here with your words. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. After a conversation with folks, can they walk away saying that your words are gracious and sweet to their soul and life-giving? Now, believer, if you struggle here, there is help. If your speech is the overflow of what is in your heart, then the key to a bridal tongue is a heart that is further changed and transformed by God. Uh, Have you asked God to expose the things in your heart that are negatively affecting your speech so that so that you might uh, deal with those things? Have you prayed with the psalmist in Psalm 119.36, where he says, incline my heart to your testimonies? Have you said with the psalmist in Psalm 119.32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart? I love that verse. 
I'll run in the way of your commandments. When you enlarge my heart, when you change my heart, when you give me a big heart for, for your ways and, and, and your word and your testimonies. Have you prayed that way? Have you asked that of him? Have you asked him to enlarge your heart so that your tongue may be better bridled so that you may run in the way of his commandments? Because true Christians will fight and struggle with this constantly. There will be a constant need for bridling. But the one born from above will want his tongue to be used as God intended. So, the first of these three tests that James gives for real religion are lips that are controlled. The second test is a love that compassionately serves, a love that compassionately serves. So, verse 27, James writes that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained, oneself unstained from the world. So, James's Jewish audience would have been very familiar with those kinds of words, pure and undefiled. Those words come from the Old Covenant sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, the priests would offer up animal sacrifices to God, and those sacrifices would have to be undefiled, animals that were seen to be without spot or blemish, and the priest had to be ritually pure. They had, they had to have an outward purity that was meant to reflect an inward purity before God. All that had to be in place before they could rightly come before God and worship. But under the new covenant, Jesus has come as our sacrifice. And in Hebrews chapter 7 says that He was innocent and unstained, undefiled, superior to the, to the bulls and goats and lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Covenant. And for those of us who trust in Jesus, His purity is placed upon us, and as we live our lives before God, everything that we do, everyday activity should be seen as a special holy act of worship, pure before God. And so Paul writes, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. I think of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul writes about Epaphroditus who was serving as a courier delivering a financial gift to Paul while he was in prison to support him. And Paul calls Epaphroditus' service a fragrant offering. That's Old Testament sacrificial language. And here James uses that worship language to describe the visitation of, of, of widows and orphans. Now, certainly things today can be very difficult for widows and orphans. But today, a widow may or may not benefit from life insurance or government programs or welfare. She may or may not be able to earn an income. An orphan may or may not be taken in by a relative. But in James's world, it was virtually guaranteed that things would be enormously difficult for the widow and for the orphan. And this concern that we see in James for widows and orphans is not just a New Testament thing. We, we see this from the very beginning of the Bible, that care for the needy was associated with the mission of God's people. So, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, concern for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that's repeated in several passages throughout Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10.18 says that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And, and the idea here is simple. That, that God's people are to be like God. They are to reflect the heart of God. God loves to show mercy to the downtrodden and to the needy. In fact, that was the very condition Israel was rescued out of. That's why Deuteronomy 10, 19 says, "'Love the sojourner, Israel, because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt.'" 
Israel was in slavery. They were in extreme need, under extreme oppression. And Deuteronomy describes God as finding Israel like one finds an orphan in the desert. And the the Scripture says that God encircled Israel and cared for him and kept him as the apple of his eye. And yet in time, Israel and their religious leaders became a people who did not care for the needy. Uh, They considered themselves very religious. But Isaiah chapter 1 tells us candidly how God viewed their religion. Listen to these excerpts from Isaiah chapter 1. This is God talking to religious Israel. He says, "'What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices?' I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Now, who told Israel to do those things? Bring the animals, bring the incense. God, God did. Now God's turning around and saying, I don't want that. It's an abomination. He goes on to say, New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Well, who told him to do those things? Originally, God did. He says, Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. Who appointed those feasts? God did. But God says, I am weary of bearing them. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And what does that look like? What does repentance look like for Israel? Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. There's a lot of religion going on in Israel. Sacrifices, holy days, praying, fasting, lots of pious activity. A lot of it was stuff that God had already told them that they should be doing. And yet now, in Isaiah 1, God couldn't care less about any of that. He says, forget all of that. Repent of your evil and demonstrate repentance through the care of the needy. God saw their religion in that moment as worthless and offensive. Now we jump forward to the New Testament, and we, the new covenant people of God, like old covenant Israel, we have been rescued by God. Our situation was even more desperate. We we were not slaves in Egypt. We were slaves to sin, the devil, and death. We were spiritual orphans, alienated and shut out from the family of God. And God saw us in our great need, and He chose us, and He adopted us into His family. And so, as with Old Covenant Israel, we, God's New Covenant people, are expected to reflect something of God's heart in our care and concern for the needy. That's what James is getting at here. When he talks about visiting widows and orphans, when he uses that word visit, he's not talking about dropping by and saying hi, just just waving. That's not what he means. That, That word visit has to do with meeting needs, providing care, alleviating suffering. And you fast forward to 21st century suburban America, and what does that what does that look like? It could really look like many different things, depending on where you are, who God has brought across your path, what ministry opportunities God brings to your mind and heart. Application of James' exhortation today could 
could, could look like many different things. When James was talking about widows and orphans, he wasn't saying just look out for widows and orphans, but you don't have to worry about anybody else. Widows and orphans, that's, that's shorthand for the neediest of the needy in society. It could mean for you serving the poorest of the poor, the sick, uh, someone who is homeless, Maybe it means considering adoption or foster care or, or helping financially someone who is going down that route. It certainly means looking for opportunities to serve people in need who can't do anything for you, who can't pay you back, right? Isn't that what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 14? He said, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just, but they're not going to pay you back. Again, the idea here is finding the neediest of the needy to serve, people who can do absolutely nothing for you. And isn't that what Jesus did for us? In our need, in our helpless state, and never think that God looked at you and said, oh man, I have got to have him on my team. I need that guy. I need her to be a Christian. No, that's not how it worked. While we were yet sinners, not, not while we were awesome and great. No, while we were yet sinners, dirty, spiritually impoverished, with nothing to commend ourselves to God and nothing to offer God, not, nothing to pay God back with. While we were in that state, Christ came and served and died for us. How can we as God's people reflect that in our own lives? Again, you're doing this not to get saved, but to reflect that you already are. It's the overflow of the, of the salvation that you already have, the, the overflow of God's nature in us, and, we, and, and so we share something of the heart of God. It, it might mean for you participating in the Rose of Sharon ministry, the, the nursing home just down the street. I, I will tell you that serving in a nursery home, or a, nursery home a, nurse, a nursing home, is a great way to serve those who can never pay you back. Uh, you may find yourself reading the Bible to someone who is barely conscious and you're wondering, well, what good is this? I'm not getting anything out of this. doesn't seem like they're getting anything out of this. But you know what? God loves that. Uh, that totally reflects the love of God and the heart of God. Uh, maybe an application for you means participating in the, the annual Operation Christmas Child program that, that we do here at Harbin's that blesses needy children all over the world. Maybe it's doing what Hannah and Nellie are, are going to be doing in Thailand. Or maybe it's supporting them in that effort. Certainly, James 1.27 has implications for the unborn. Go, go on Tuesday down to Planned Parenthood and, and minister there alongside Peter. Uh, are, are they not, are not the, the unborn, uh, the neediest and most helpless in our society today, in the 21st century? And consider ministering to the women who go there. Uh, Some who might be under pressure from others, some who might be exploited by their boyfriends, some who may feel like they have no hope and nowhere to turn. To visit widows and orphans and the needy in the biblical sense is not just to serve for the sake of serving, it is instead to show something of God to others. 
I'm reminding, uh, reminded of the story in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus went to a village, and there in that village was a widow whose son had died. Now, to have a son die would be terrible in any situation, but to be a widow in that day with no husband to take care of you and to provide for you, and then for your son to die and lose another source of support and care and help, that would be absolutely devastating. And we are told in that text that that Jesus had compassion on her, and He rose her son from the dead, and He gave the young man back to his mother. And the story ends this way. It ends by saying that fear seized them all, all in the village, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. Visited, same word. God has visited, God has shown up. And yes, if you see a resurrection, that qualifies as God visiting. But remember, Remember, the idea of this word visit, it has to do with, the special, with, with special ministry and loving compassion and care to those in need. Brothers and sisters, when you care for the needy and alleviate the ministry of the suffering in the name of Jesus, it is like God visiting them. Not you, but God. Of course, the meeting of needs is never meant to obscure the message of the gospel. And I know there's a big debate going on right now in the, in the church world about what some call the social gospel and the place that serving the needy has in the church. And I don't know all the ins and outs of that debate and all the nuances that are there, but what I do know is what Scripture says. And that's number one, that no one is saved apart from the preaching of the good news of the gospel. And number two, that the good news should be accompanied by good deeds. It's not, it's not either or, it's both and. I think back on so many great heroes of church history who would not divorce the gospel from being the hands and feet of Jesus and meeting and ministering to the temporal needs of others. Think of of, uh, William Wilberforce in England, who wrote in his journal in 1787, he said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects. Number one, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, by reformation of manners, he's not talking about you know, how you hold your fork, or those sorts of things. Uh, By reformation of manners, he meant his duty to, from his Christian worldview, inform and shape the social conscience of his society. And of course, through his tireless efforts, eventually the slave trade was indeed abolished. I think of Charles Spurgeon, who is known mostly for his powerful preaching ministry and his passion for evangelism, But his ministry also was marked by a desire for good deeds to accompany the good news. And at one Monday night prayer meeting, Spurgeon said this. He said, we are a large church and should be doing more for the Lord in this great city. I want us to ask Him to send us some new work, and if we need money to carry it on, let us pray that the means may also be sent. And from that prayer meeting came the Stockwell Orphanage, ministering to so many kids. And I wonder if we, Harbin's Church, should be praying more like this, how Spurgeon was, was praying with his folks at that Monday night prayer meeting. Should we be praying that the Lord would send us some new work and the money to carry it out? What might happen through our earnest prayers as a church body? Brothers and sisters, the needs are great. None of us can do everything, and none of us are called to do everything that others are doing. But 
how are we as God's people reflecting God's heart in our service to those in need? I'll bet many in this room have much room to grow in this area. I know I do. So the first test of real religion, lips that are controlled, the second, a love that compassionately serves, and the third test that James gives is a life that is consecrated to God. Look at the end of verse 27. He says that real religion means to keep oneself unstained from the world. The idea of consecration, uh, to consecrate something means to make it holy, to separate it. The, The idea is that the thing that is consecrated is separated from sin and separate it to God. And I think that's what James is getting at here. We belong to God, not to the world. But to keep oneself unstained from the world doesn't mean isolation from society. It doesn't mean you form your own little safe Christian bubbles. You just hang out with Christian people. You just go to Christian events. It doesn't mean you have nothing in common with non-Christians doesn't mean that you can't enjoy sports or art or music or have some other common interest. It doesn't mean separation from society like you're some sort of cult. Some people think that's what real religion means, kind of an Amish mentality, complete withdrawal. It's not what James is getting at here. <clears throat> when James says world, he doesn't mean planet earth, and he doesn't mean people. World in the Bible sometimes means a certain system, a philosophy, a worldview that is hostile to God, that is rebellious against God, that pushes back against the wisdom of God as revealed in His Word and, 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 and pushing back uh, against that and instead coming up with its own wisdom. And to keep yourself unstained from the world means to keep yourself from falling into the ways of the world that will result in godless thinking and godless living. That's the issue. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer, prays for His disciples in John 17, 15, and He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, the idea is that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, We're in it, we live in it, we engage with it, we need to be in the world if we're going to reach the world with the good news. We need to be in the world if we're going to serve them with good deeds. But we're not of the world in the sense that we are of God. We are born of God. We are, in that sense, different than the world. And so, so we're called to identify with the world's needs, but not the world's sin. Because while we're in the world, we're not of this world. And so God's people are going to, going to be different and strange to others. And, of course, that's been the case from the very beginning. Israel was meant to be a peculiar people in the middle of all the worldly nations around them. They were to stand out as they reflected God's character and holiness with the hopes that as they shone like a beacon in the night, some might be drawn and would discover the one true God. And so it is with believers today. Sometimes Christians get it backwards and think, well, to reach the world, we've got to become like the world. We've got to blend in. And sometimes Christians blend in so much that in time they become virtually indistinguishable from the world. But that's not how God is going to reach the world. God doesn't use people who are just like the world. God uses people who are strangely and refreshingly different than the world. Jesus said, You are the salts of the earth. 
You see, on the one hand, salt has to come in contact with the meat to be useful, right? So, so as God's people, uh, we must actually come in contact with the world, be in the world to be useful. We've got to get out of the Christian bubble to be salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, he says. In other words, if the believer loses his saltiness, if he becomes stained by the world, conformed to the world, he's no good to the world. Likewise, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The light must be shining in the world to be useful to the world. And if that light grows dim, then such a believer will be no good to the world that they're supposed to reach. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, don't live like the world. And then he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, that's living a consecrated holy life. And what's the result of that? He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, living a life unstained by the world isn't just for your sake. It's for the sake of that same world. And that's what real religion looks like, lips that are controlled, love that compassionately serves, life that is consecrated. Let me ask you this. How did you do on the test? If you're like me, it was a bit painful to take. There's not a single person in this room who scored 100% on any aspect of this test. And if you say that you did, then you just failed because you're prideful. But if you realize this morning that you failed the test, then you've actually passed a more important test. Because James in chapter 4 writes something very glorious. He says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You see, the only one who actually passed the test is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus bridled His tongue perfectly. He spoke gracious and true words. And when He was persecuted, He did not revile His enemies. Uh, Jesus compassionately and lovingly served always. He, he healed the sick. He touched lepers. He had mercy on immoral men and immoral women and associated Himself with people that the Pharisees, those of the false religion, would arrogantly shun. And Jesus kept Himself completely unstained from the world. He was in the world, and He was not of it. His life was totally consecrated to God, and He was tempted as we are in every way. And yet, without sin. Jesus is the epitome of real religion, and He died for sinners like us, atoning for our failure to be everything that we should be. And whoever humbles themselves and receives Jesus by faith will receive grace and be washed clean and pure, forgiven by God because the believer stands before God, not on the basis of his own righteousness, not based on his own ability to keep these tests, 
but all believers stand because of Jesus' ability to perfectly obey God on our behalf. But not only is there hope for forgiveness when we humbly cry out to God for mercy, there's also help to actually live more and more as James urges us to in our text today. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus' death purchases the power that the man and woman of God needs to live for him. And so while we will never be perfect in this life, We can grow closer and closer to that perfection as we are empowered through Him, working through the Word and responding to our prayers that He would incline our hearts to His testimonies, that He would enlarge our hearts, that we may run in His commandments. Let's pray.